Chapter Two of the People That Time Forgot. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ralph Snelson. The People That Time Forgot by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Two. I'll never forget my first impressions of Caspak as I circled in, high over the surrounding cliffs. From the plain I looked down through a mist upon the blurred landscape beneath me. The hot, humid atmosphere of Caspak condenses as it is fanned by the cold Antarctic air currents which sweep across the crater's top, sending a tenuous ribbon of vapor far out across the Pacific. Through this the picture gave one the suggestion of a colossal impressionistic canvas in greens and browns and scarlets and yellows surrounding the deep blue of the inland sea, just blobs of color taking form through the tumbling mist. I dived close to the cliffs and skirted them for several miles without finding the least indication of a suitable landing place, and then I swung back at a lower level, looking for a clearing close to the bottom of the mighty escarpment, but I could find none of sufficient area to ensure safety. I was flying pretty low by this time, not only looking for landing places, but watching the myriad life beneath me. I was down pretty well toward the south end of the island, where an arm of the lake reaches far inland, and I could see the surface of the water literally black with creatures of some sort. I was too far up to recognize individuals, but the general impression was of a vast army of amphibious monsters. The land was almost equally alive with crawling, leaping, running, flying things. It was one of the latter which nearly did for me while my attention was fixed upon the weird scene below. The first intimation I had of it was the sudden blotting out of the sunlight from above and as I glanced quickly up I saw a most terrific creature swooping down upon me. It must have been fully eighty feet long from the end of its long hideous beak to the tip of its thick short tail, with an equal spread of wings. It was coming straight for me and hissing frightfully. I could hear it above the whir of the propeller. It was coming straight down toward the muzzle of the machine-gun, and I let it have it right in the breast, but still it came for me, so that I had to dive and turn, though I was dangerously close to earth. The thing didn't miss me by a dozen feet, and when I rose it wheeled and followed me, but only to the cooler air close to the level of the cliff-tops. There it turned again and dropped. Something, man's natural love of battle and the chase, I presume, impelled me to pursue it, and so I too circled and dived. The moment I came down into the warm atmosphere of Caspak, the creature came for me again, rising above me so that it might swoop down upon me. Nothing could better have suited my armament, since my machine-gun was pointed upward at an angle of about twenty degrees, and could not be either depressed or elevated by the pilot. If I had brought someone along with me, we could have raked the great reptile from almost any position, but as the creature's mode of attack was always from above, he always found me ready with a hail of bullets. The battle must have lasted a minute or more before the thing suddenly turned completely over in the air and fell to the ground. Bowen and I roomed together at college, and I learned a lot from him outside my regular course. He was a pretty good scholar despite his love of fun, and his particular hobby was paleontology. He used to tell me about the various forms of animal and vegetable life which had covered the globe during former eras, 
and so I was pretty well acquainted with the fishes, amphibians, reptiles, and mammals of Paleolithic times. I knew that the thing that had attacked me was some sort of pterodactyl which should have been extinct millions of years ago. It was all that I needed to realize that Bowen had exaggerated nothing in his manuscript. Having disposed of my first foe, I set myself once more to search for a landing place near to the base of the cliffs beyond which my party awaited me. I knew how anxious they would be for word from me, and I was equally anxious to relieve their minds and also to get them and our supplies well within Caspak, so that we might set off about our business of finding and rescuing Bowen Tyler. But the pterodactyl's carcass had scarcely fallen before I was surrounded by at least a dozen of the hideous things, some large, some small, but all bent upon my destruction. I could not cope with them all, and so I rose rapidly from among them to the cooler strata wherein they dared not follow, and then I recalled that Bowen's narrative distinctly indicated that the farther north one traveled in Caspak, the fewer were the terrible reptiles which rendered human life impossible at the southern end of the island. There seemed nothing now but to search out a more northerly landing place, and then return to the Toreador and transport my companions, two by two, over the cliffs and deposit them at the rendezvous. As I flew north, the temptation to explore overcame me. I knew that I could easily cover Caspak and return to the beach with less petrol than I had in my tanks, and there was the hope, too, that I might find Bowen or some of his party. The broad expanse of the inland sea lured me out over its waters, and as I crossed I saw at either extremity of the great body of water an island, one to the south and one to the north, but I did not alter my course to examine either closely, leaving that to a later time. The further shore of the sea revealed a much narrower strip of land between the cliffs and the water than upon the western side, but it was hillier and more open country. There were splendid landing places, and in the distance toward the north I thought I described a village, but of that I was not positive. However, as I approached the land I saw a number of human figures apparently pursuing one who fled across a broad expanse of meadow. As I dropped lower to have a better look at these people, they caught the whirring of my propellers and looked aloft. They paused an instant, pursuers and pursued, and then they broke and raced for the shelter of the nearest wood. Almost instantaneously a huge bulk swooped down upon me, and as I looked up I realized that there were flying reptiles even in this part of Caspak. The creature dived for my right wing so quickly that nothing but a sheer drop could have saved me. I was already close to the ground, so that my maneuver was extremely dangerous, but I was in a fair way of making it successfully when I saw that I was too closely approaching a large tree. My effort to dodge the tree and the pterodactyl at the same time resulted disastrously. One wing touched an upper branch, the plane tipped and swung around, and then, out of control, dashed into the branches of the tree, where it came to rest, battered and torn, forty feet above the ground. Hissing loudly, the huge reptile swept close above the tree in which my plane had lodged, circled twice over me, and then flapped away toward the south. As I guessed then, and was to learn later, forests are the surest sanctuary from these hideous creatures, which, with their enormous spread of wing and their great weight, are as much out of place among trees as is a seaplane. For a minute or so I clung there to my battered flyer. 
now useless beyond redemption, my brain numbed by the frightful catastrophe that had befallen me. All my plans for the succor of Bowen and Miss LaRue had depended upon this craft, and in a few minutes my own selfish love of adventure had wrecked their hopes and mine, and what effect it might have upon the future of the balance of the rescuing expedition I could not even guess. Their lives, too, might be sacrificed to my suicidal foolishness. That I was doomed seemed inevitable, but I can honestly say that the fate of my friends concerned me more greatly than did my own. Beyond the barrier cliffs my party was even now nervously awaiting my return. Presently apprehension and fear would claim them, and they would never know. They would attempt to scale the cliffs, of that I was sure, but I was not so positive that they would succeed, and after a while they would turn back, what there were left of them, and go sadly and mournfully upon their return journey to home. Home! I set my jaws and tried to forget the word for I knew that I should never again see home. And what of Bowen and his girl? I had doomed them too. They would never even know that an attempt had been made to rescue them. If they still lived, they might some day come upon the ruined remnants of this great plain, hanging in its lofty sepulchre, and hazard vain guesses and be filled with wonder. But they would never know and I could not but be glad that they would not know that Tom Billings had sealed their death warrants by his criminal selfishness. All these useless regrets were getting me in a bad way, but at last I shook myself and tried to put such things out of my mind and take hold of conditions as they existed and do my level best to wrest victory from defeat. I was badly shaken up and bruised, but considered myself mighty lucky to escape with my life. The plane hung at a precarious angle, so that it was with difficulty and considerable danger that I climbed from it into the tree and then to the ground. My predicament was grave. Between me and my friends lay an inland sea fully sixty miles wide at this point, and an estimated land distance of some three hundred miles around the northern end of the sea, through such hideous dangers as I am perfectly free to admit had me pretty well buffaloed. I had seen quite enough of Caspak this day to assure me that Bowen had in no way exaggerated its perils. As a matter of fact, I am inclined to believe that he had become so accustomed to them before he started upon his manuscript that he rather slighted them. As I stood there beneath that tree, a tree which should have been part of a coal-bed countless ages since, and looked out across a sea teeming with frightful life, life which should have been fossil before God conceived of Adam, I would not have given a minimum of stale beer for my chances of ever seeing my friends or the outside world again. Yet then and there I swore to fight my way as far through this hideous land as circumstances would permit. I had plenty of ammunition, an automatic pistol, and a heavy rifle, the latter one of twenty added to our equipment on the strength of Bowen's description of the huge beasts of prey which ravaged Caspak. My greatest danger lay in the hideous reptilia whose low nervous organizations permitted their carnivorous instincts to function for several minutes after they had ceased to live. But to these things I gave less thought than to the sudden frustration of all our plans. With the bitterest of thoughts I condemned myself for the foolish weakness that had permitted me to be drawn from the main object of my flight into premature and useless exploration. 
It seemed to me then that I must be totally eliminated from further search for Bowen, since, as I estimated it, the three hundred miles of Caspakian territory I must traverse to reach the base of the cliffs beyond which my party awaited me were practically impassable for a single individual unaccustomed to Caspakian life and ignorant of all that lay before him. Yet I could not give up hope entirely. My duty lay clear before me. I must follow it while life remained to me, and so I set forth toward the north. The country through which I took my way was as lovely as it was unusual. I had almost said unearthly, for the plants, the trees, the blooms were not of the earth that I knew. They were larger, the colors more brilliant, and the shapes startling, some almost to grotesqueness, though even such added to the charm and romance of the landscape as the giant cacti render weirdly beautiful the waste spots of the sad Mojave. And over all the sun shone huge and round and red, a monster sun above a monstrous world, its light dispersed by the humid air of Caspak, the warm, moist air which lies sluggish upon the breast of this great mother of life, nature's mightiest incubator. All about me, in every direction, was life. It moved through the treetops and among the boles. It displayed itself in widening and intermingling circles upon the bosom of the sea. It leaped from the depths. I could hear it in a dense wood at my right, the murmur of it rising and falling in ceaseless volumes of sound, riven at intervals by a horrid scream or a thunderous roar which shook the earth and always I was haunted by that inexplicable sensation that unseen eyes were watching me, that soundless feet dogged my trail. I am neither nervous nor high-strung, but the burden of responsibility upon me weighed heavily, so that I was more cautious than is my wont. I turned often to right and left and rear, lest I be surprised, and I carried my rifle at the ready in my hand. Once I could have sworn that among the many creatures dimly perceived amidst the shadows of the wood I saw a human figure dart from one cover to another, but I could not be sure. For the most part I skirted the wood, making occasional detours rather than enter those forbidding depths of gloom, though many times I was forced to pass through arms of the forest which extended to the very shore of the inland sea. There was so sinister a suggestion in the uncouth sounds and the vague glimpses of moving things within the forest, of the menace of strange beasts and possibly still stranger men, that I always breathed more freely when I had passed once more into open country. I had traveled northward for perhaps an hour, still haunted by the conviction that I was being stalked by some creature which kept always hidden among the trees and shrubbery to my right and a little to my rear, when for the hundredth time I was attracted by a sound from that direction, and turning saw some animal running rapidly through the forest toward me. There was no longer any effort on its part at concealment. It came on through the underbrush swiftly and I was confident that whatever it was, it had finally gathered the courage to charge me boldly. Before it finally broke into plain view, I became aware that it was not alone. For a few yards in its rear, a second thing thrashed through the leafy jungle. Evidently I was to be attacked in force by a pair of hunting beasts, or men, and then through the last clump of waving ferns broke the figure of the foremost creature, 
which came leaping toward me on light feet as I stood with my rifle to my shoulder, covering the point at which I had expected it would emerge. I must have looked foolish indeed if my surprise and consternation were in any way reflected upon my countenance as I lowered my rifle and gazed incredulous at the lithe figure of the girl speeding swiftly in my direction. But I did not have long to stand thus with lowered weapon, for as she came I saw her cast an affrighted glance over her shoulder, and at the same moment there broke from the jungle at the same spot at which I had seen her the hugest cat I had ever looked upon. At first I took the beast for a saber-toothed tiger. It was quite the most fearsome-appearing beast one could imagine, but it was not that dread monster of the past, though quite formidable enough to satisfy the most fastidious thrill-hunter. On it came, grim and terrible, its baleful eyes glaring above its distended jaws, its lips curled in a frightful snarl which exposed a whole mouthful of formidable teeth. At sight of me it had abandoned its impetuous rush, and was now sneaking slowly toward us, while the girl, a long knife in her hand, took her stand bravely at my left and a little to my rear. She had called something to me in a strange tongue as she raced toward me, and now she spoke again, but what she said I could not then, of course, know, only that her tones were sweet, well-modulated, and free from any suggestion of panic. Facing the huge cat which I now saw was an enormous panther, I waited until I could place a shot where I felt it would do the most good, for at best a frontal shot at any of the large carnivora is a ticklish matter. I had some advantage in that the beast was not charging, its head was held low and its back exposed, and so at forty yards I took careful aim at its spine at the junction of neck and shoulders. But at the same instant, as though sensing my intention, the great creature lifted its head and leaped forward in full charge. To fire at that sloping forehead I knew would be worse than useless, and so I quickly shifted my aim and pulled the trigger, hoping against hope that the soft-nosed bullet and the heavy charge of powder would have sufficient stopping effect to give me time to place a second shot. In answer to the report of the rifle, I had the satisfaction of seeing the brute spring into the air, turning a complete somersault, but it was up again almost instantly, though in the brief second that it took it to scramble to its feet and get its bearings, it exposed its left side fully toward me, and a second bullet went crashing through its heart. Down it went for the second time, and then up and at me, the vitality of these creatures of Caspak is one of the marvelous features of this strange world, and bespeaks the low nervous organization of the old Paleolithic life which has been so long extinct in other portions of the world. I put a third bullet into the beast at three paces, and then I thought that I was done for, but it rolled over and stopped at my feet, stone dead. I found that my second bullet had torn its heart almost completely away, and yet it had lived to charge ferociously upon me, and but for my third shot would doubtless have slain me before it finally expired, or, as Bowen Tyler so quaintly put it, before it knew that it was dead. With the panther quite evidently conscious of the fact that dissolution had overtaken it, I turned toward the girl, who was regarding me with evident admiration and not a little awe though I must admit that my rifle claimed quite as much of her attention as did I. She was quite the most wonderful animal that I have ever looked upon, 
and what few of her charms her apparel hid it quite effectively succeeded in accentuating a bit of soft undressed leather was caught over her left shoulder and beneath her right breast falling upon her left side to her hip and upon the right to a metal band which encircled her leg above the knee and to which the lowest point of the hide was attached about her waist was a loose leather belt to the centre of which was attached the scabbard belonging to her knife there was a single armlet between her right shoulder and elbow and a series of them covered her left arm from elbow to wrist these i learned later answered the purpose of a shield against knife attack when the left arm is raised in guard against the breast or face her masses of heavy hair were held in place by a broad metal band which bore a large triangular ornament directly in the center of her forehead. This ornament appeared to be a huge turquoise, while the metal of all her ornaments was beaten virgin gold, inlaid in intricate design with bits of mother-of-pearl and tiny pieces of stone of various colors. From the left shoulder depended a leopard's tail, while her feet were shod with sturdy little sandals. The knife was her only weapon. Its blade was of iron. The grip was wound with hide, and protected by a guard of three outbowing strips of flat iron, and upon the top of the hilt was a knob of gold. I took in much of this in the few seconds during which we stood facing each other, and I also observed another salient feature of her appearance. She was frightfully dirty. Her face and limbs and garment were streaked with mud and perspiration and yet even so I felt that I had never looked upon so perfect and beautiful a creature as she. Her figure beggars description, and equally so her face. Were I one of those writer-fellows, I should probably say that her features were Grecian, but being neither a writer nor a poet, I can do her greater justice by saying that she combined all of the finest lines that one sees in the typical American girl's face, rather than the pronounced sheep-like physiognomy of the Greek goddess. No, even the dirt couldn't hide that fact. She was beautiful beyond compare. As we stood looking at each other, a slow smile came to her face, parting her symmetrical lips and disclosing a row of strong white teeth. Galu, she asked with rising inflection, and remembering that I read in Bowen's manuscript that Galu seemed to indicate a higher type of man, I answered by pointing to myself and repeating the word. Then she started off on a regular catechism, if I could judge by her inflection, for I certainly understood no word of what she said. All the time the girl kept glancing toward the forest, and at last she touched my arm and pointed in that direction. Turning, I saw a hairy figure of a man-like thing standing watching us, and presently another and another emerged from the jungle and joined the leader, until there must have been at least twenty of them. They were entirely naked, their bodies were covered with hair, and though they stood upon their feet without touching their hands to the ground, they had a very ape-like appearance, since they stooped forward and had very long arms and quite apish features. They were not pretty to look upon with the close-set eyes, flat noses, long upper lips, and protruding yellow fangs. Alice, said the girl, I had reread Bowen's adventures so often that I knew them almost by heart, and so now I knew that I was looking upon the last remnant of that ancient man-race, the Alice of a forgotten period, the speechless man of antiquity. Kaiser 
cried the girl, and at the same moment the Alice came jabbering toward us. They made strange growling, barking noises, as, with much bearing of fangs, they advanced upon us. They were armed only with nature's weapons, powerful muscles and giant fangs. Yet I knew that these were quite sufficient to overcome us had we nothing better to offer in defense, and so I drew my pistol and fired at the leader. He dropped like a stone, and the others turned and fled. Once again the girl smiled her slow smile, and, stepping closer, caressed the barrel of my automatic. As she did so, her fingers came in contact with mine, and a sudden thrill ran through me, which I attributed to the fact that it had been so long since I had seen a woman of any sort or kind. She said something to me in her low, liquid tones, but I could not understand her, and then she pointed toward the north and started away. I followed her, for my way was north too, but had it been south I still should have followed, so hungry was I for human companionship in this world of beasts and reptiles and half-men. We walked along, the girl talking a great deal, and seeming mystified that I could not understand her. Her silvery laugh rang merrily when I in turn essayed to speak to her, as though my language was the quaintest thing she ever had heard. Often, after fruitless attempts to make me understand, she would hold her palm toward me, saying, Galu, and then touch my breast or arm and cry, Alu, Alu. I knew what she meant, for I had learned from Bowen's narrative the negative gesture and the two words which she repeated. She meant that I was no Galu, as I claimed, but an Alu, or speechless one. Yet every time she said this she laughed again and so infectious were her tones that I could only join her. It was only natural, too, that she should be mystified by my inability to comprehend her or to make her comprehend me, for from the club men, the lowest human type in Caspak to have speech, to the golden race of Galus, the tongues of the various tribes are identical, except for amplifications in the rising scale of evolution. She, who is a Galu, can understand one of the Bolu, and make herself understood to him, or to a hatchet-man, a spearman, or an archer. The Holus, or apes, the Alus, and myself were the only creatures of human semblance with which she could hold no converse. Yet it was evident that her intelligence told her that I was neither Holu nor Alu, neither anthropoid ape nor speechless man. Yet she did not despair, but set out to teach me her language, and had it not been that I worried so greatly over the fate of Bowen and my companions of the Toreador, I could have wished the period of instruction prolonged. I never have been what one might call a ladies' man, though I like their company immensely, and during my college days and since have made various friends among the sex. I think that I rather appeal to a certain type of girl for the reason that I never make love to them. I leave that to the numerous others who do it infinitely better than I could hope to, and take my pleasure out of girls' society in what seem to be more rational ways, dancing, golfing, boating, riding, tennis, and the like. Yet in the company of this half-naked little savage I found a new pleasure that was entirely distinct from any that I ever had experienced. When she touched me I thrilled as I had never before thrilled in contact with another woman. I could not quite understand it, for I am sufficiently sophisticated to know that this is a symptom of love, and I certainly did not love this filthy little barbarian with her broken, unkempt nails and her skin so besmeared with mud and the green of crushed foliage 
that it was difficult to say what color it originally had been. But if she was outwardly uncouth, her clear eyes and strong white, even teeth, her silvery laugh and her queenly carriage bespoke an innate fineness which dirt could not quite successfully conceal. The sun was low in the heavens when we came upon a little river which emptied into a large bay at the foot of low cliffs. Our journey so far had been beset with constant danger, as is every journey in this frightful land. I have not bored you with a recital of the wearying successions of attacks by the multitude of creatures which were constantly crossing our path or deliberately stalking us. We were always upon the alert, for here, to paraphrase, eternal vigilance is indeed the price of life. I had managed to progress a little in the acquisition of a knowledge of her tongue, so that I knew many of the animals and reptiles by their Caspakian names, and trees and ferns and grasses. I knew the words for sea and river and cliff, for sky and sun and cloud. Yes, I was getting along finely, and then it occurred to me that I didn't know my companion's name, so I pointed to myself and said, Tom, and to her and raised my eyebrows in interrogation. The girl ran her fingers into that mass of hair and looked puzzled. I repeated the action a dozen times. Tom, she said finally in that clear, sweet, liquid voice, Tom. I had never thought much of my name before, but when she spoke it, it sounded to me for the first time in my life like a mighty nice name, and then she brightened suddenly and tapped her own breast and said, Ajor, Ajor, I repeated, and she laughed and struck her palms together. Well, we knew each other's names now, and that was some satisfaction. I rather liked hers, Ajor, and she seemed to like mine, for she repeated it. We came to the cliffs, beside the little river where it empties into the bay with the great inland sea beyond. The cliffs were weather-worn and rotted, and in one place a deep hollow ran back beneath the overhanging stone for several feet, suggesting shelter for the night. There were loose rocks strewn all about, with which I might build a barricade across the entrance to the cave, and so I halted there and pointed out the place to Ajor, trying to make her understand that we would spend the night there. As soon as she grasped my meaning, she assented with the Caspakian equivalent of an affirmative nod, and then touching my rifle motioned me to follow her to the river. At the bank she paused, removed her belt and dagger, dropping them to the ground at her side, then unfastening the lower edge of her garment from the metal leg-band to which it was attached, slipped it off her left shoulder and let it drop to the ground around her feet. It was done so naturally, so simply, and so quickly, that it left me gasping like a fish out of water. Turning, she flashed a smile at me, and then dived into the river, and there she bathed while I stood guard over her. For five or ten minutes she splashed about, and when she emerged her glistening skin was smooth and white and beautiful. Without means of drying herself, she simply ignored what to me would have seemed a necessity, and in a moment was arrayed in her simple though effective costume. It was now within an hour of darkness, and as I was nearly famished, I led the way back about a quarter of a mile to a low meadow where we had seen antelope and small horses a short time before. Here I brought down a young buck, the report of my rifle sending the balance of the herd scampering for the woods, where they were met by a chorus of hideous roars as the carnivora took advantage of their panic and leaped among them. With my hunting knife I removed a hind quarter and then we returned to camp. 
Here I gathered a great quantity of wood from fallen trees, Ajor helping me, but before I built a fire I also gathered sufficient loose rock to build my barricade against the frightful terrors of the night to come. I shall never forget the expression upon Ajor's face as she saw me strike a match and light the kindling beneath our campfire. It was such an expression as might transform a mortal face with awe as its owner beheld the mysterious workings of divinity. It was evident that Ajor was quite unfamiliar with modern methods of fire-making. She had thought my rifle and pistol wonderful, but these tiny slivers of wood, which from a magic rub brought a flame to the camp hearth, were indeed miracles to her. As the meat roasted above the fire, Ajor and I tried once again to talk but though copiously filled with incentive, gestures, and sounds, the conversation did not flourish notably. And then Ajor took up in earnest the task of teaching me her language. She commenced, as I later learned, with the simplest form of speech known to Caspak, or for that matter to the world, that employed by the Bolu. I found it far from difficult, and even though it was a great handicap upon my instructor that she could not speak my language, she did remarkably well, and demonstrated that she possessed ingenuity and intelligence of a high order. After we had eaten, I added to the pile of firewood so that I could replenish the fire before the entrance to our barricade, believing this as good a protection against the carnivora as we could have. And then Ajor and I sat down before it, and the lesson proceeded, while from all about us came the weird and awesome noises of the Caspakian night the moaning and the coughing and roaring of the tigers, the panthers and the lions, the barking and the dismal howling of a wolf, jackal and hyenodon, the shrill shrieks of stricken prey and the hissing of the great reptiles. The voice of man alone was silent. But though the voice of this choir terrible rose and fell from far and near in all directions, reaching at times such a tremendous volume of sound that the earth shook to it, Yet so engrossed was I in my lesson and in my teacher that often I was deaf to what at another time would have filled me with awe. The face and voice of the beautiful girl who leaned so eagerly toward me as she tried to explain the meaning of some word or correct my pronunciation of another quite entirely occupied my every faculty of perception. The firelight shone upon her animated features and sparkling eyes, it accentuated the graceful motions of her gesturing arms and hands. It sparkled from her white teeth and from her golden ornaments, and glistened on the smooth firmness of her perfect skin. I am afraid that often I was more occupied with admiration of this beautiful animal than with a desire for knowledge. But be that as it may, I nevertheless learned much that evening, though part of what I learned had not to do with any new language. Ajor seemed determined that I should speak Caspakian as quickly as possible, and I thought I saw in her desire a little of that all-feminine trait which has come down through all the ages from the first lady of the world, curiosity. Ajor desired that I should speak her tongue in order that she might satisfy a curiosity concerning me that was filling her to a point where she was in danger of bursting. Of that I was positive. She was a regular little animated question mark. She bubbled over with interrogations which were never to be satisfied unless I learned to speak her tongue. Her eyes sparkled with excitement, her hand flew in expressive gestures, 
her little tongue raced with time, yet all to no avail. I could say man and tree and cliff and lion and a number of other words in perfect Caspakian, but such a vocabulary was only tantalizing. It did not lend itself well to a very general conversation, and the result was that Ajor would wax so wroth that she would clench her little fists and beat me on the breast as hard as ever she could, and then she would sink back laughing as the humor of the situation captured her. She was trying to teach me some verbs by going through the actions herself as she repeated the proper word. We were very much engrossed, so much so that we were giving no heed to what went on beyond our cave, when Ajor stopped very suddenly, crying, Kazor! Now she had been trying to teach me that Jew meant stop, so when she cried Kazor and at the same time stopped, I thought for a moment that this was part of my lesson, for the moment I forgot that Kazor means beware. I therefore repeated the word after her, but when I saw the expression in her eyes as they were directed past me and saw her point toward the entrance to the cave, I turned quickly to see a hideous face at the small aperture leading out into the night. It was the fierce and snarling countenance of a gigantic bear. I have hunted silver tips in the white mountains of Arizona, and thought them quite the largest and most formidable of big game, but from the appearance of the head of this awful creature I judged that the largest grizzly I had ever seen would shrink by comparison to the dimensions of a Newfoundland dog. Our fire was just within the cave the smoke rising through the apertures between the rocks that I had piled in such a way that they arched inward toward the cliff at the top. The opening by means of which we were to reach the outside was barricaded with a few large fragments which did not by any means close it entirely, but through the apertures thus left no large animal could gain ingress. I had depended most, however, upon our fire, feeling that none of the dangerous nocturnal beasts of prey would venture close to the flames. In this, however, I was quite evidently in error, for the great bear stood with his nose not a foot from the blaze, which was now low, owing to the fact that I had been so occupied with my lesson and my teacher that I had neglected to replenish it. Ajor whipped out her futile little knife and pointed to my rifle. At the same time she spoke in a quite level voice, entirely devoid of nervousness or any evidence of fear or panic. I knew she was exhorting me to fire upon the beast, but this I did not wish to do other than as a last resort, for I was quite sure that even my heavy bullets would not more than further enrage him, in which case he might easily force an entrance to our cave. Instead of firing I piled some more wood upon the fire and as the smoke and blaze arose in the beast's face, it backed away, growling most frightfully. But I still could see two ugly points of light blazing in the outer darkness, and hear its growls rumbling terrifically without. For some time the creature stood there watching the entrance to our frail sanctuary, while I racked my brains in futile endeavor to plan some method of defense or escape. I knew full well that should the bear make a determined effort to get at us, the rocks I had piled as a barrier would come tumbling down about his giant shoulders like a house of cards, and that he would walk directly in upon us. Ajor, having less knowledge of the effectiveness of firearms than I, and therefore greater confidence in them, entreated me to shoot the beast, but I knew that the chance that I could stop it with a single shot was most remote, while that I should but infuriate it was real and present. 
and so I waited for what seemed an eternity, watching those devilish points of fire glaring balefully at us, and listening to the ever-increasing volume of those seismic growls which seemed to rumble upward from the bowels of the earth, shaking the very cliffs beneath which we cowered, until at last I saw that the brute was again approaching the aperture. It availed me nothing that I piled the blaze high with firewood until Ajor and I were near to roasting. On came that mighty engine of destruction, until once again the hideous face yawned its fanged yawn directly within the barrier's opening. It stood thus a moment, and then the head was withdrawn. I breathed a sigh of relief. The thing had altered its intention, and was going on in search of other and more easily procurable prey. The fire had been too much for it. But my joy was short-lived, and my heart sank once again, as a moment later I saw a mighty paw insinuated into the opening, a paw as large around as a large dishpan. Very gently the paw toyed with the great rock that partly closed the entrance, pushed and pulled upon it, and then very deliberately drew it outward and to one side. Again came the head, and this time much farther into the cavern but still the great shoulders would not pass through the opening. Ajor moved closer to me until her shoulder touched my side, and I thought I felt a slight tremor run through her body, but otherwise she gave no indication of fear. Involuntarily I threw my left arm about her and drew her to me for an instant. It was an act of reassurance rather than a caress, though I must admit that again, and even in the face of death, I thrilled at the contact with her and then I released her, and threw my rifle to my shoulder, for at last I had reached the conclusion that nothing more could be gained by waiting. My only hope was to get as many shots into the creature as I could before it was upon me. Already it had torn away a second rock, and was in the very act of forcing its huge bulk through the opening it had now made. So now I took careful aim between its eyes. My right fingers closed firmly and evenly upon the small of the stock, drawing back my trigger finger by the muscular action of the hand. The bullet could not fail to hit its mark. I held my breath lest I swerve the muzzle a hair by my breathing. I was as steady and cool as I ever had been upon a target range, and I had the full consciousness of a perfect hit in anticipation. I knew that I could not miss, and then, as the bear surged forward toward me, the hammer fell, futilely, upon an imperfect cartridge. Almost simultaneously I heard from without a perfectly hellish roar. The bear gave voice to a series of growls far transcending in volume and ferocity anything that he had yet essayed, and at the same time backed quickly from the cave. For an instant I couldn't understand what had happened to cause this sudden retreat, when his prey was practically within his clutches. The idea that the harmless clicking of the hammer had frightened him was too ridiculous to entertain. However, we had not long to wait before we could at least guess at the cause of the diversion, for from without came mingled growls and roars and the sound of great bodies thrashing about until the earth shook. The bear had been attacked in the rear by some other mighty beast, and the two were now locked in a titanic struggle for supremacy. With brief respites, during which we could hear the labored breathing of the contestants, the battle continued for the better part of an hour, until the sounds of combat grew gradually less and finally ceased entirely. At Ajor's suggestion, made by signs and a few of the words we knew in common, 
I moved the fire directly to the entrance to the cave, so that a beast would have to pass directly through the flames to reach us, and then we sat and waited for the victor of the battle to come and claim his reward. But though we sat for a long time with our eyes glued to the opening, we saw no sign of any beast. At last I signed to Ajor to lie down, for I knew that she must have sleep, and I sat on guard until nearly morning, when the girl awoke and insisted that I take some rest. Nor would she be denied, but dragged me down as she laughingly menaced me with her knife. End of chapter 2